Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. How you doing, good friends? Thank you again for swinging by today. All of us here in the mountains grew up running through the woods and working the fields as well as going to school. We had friends, dealt with bullies, and played during recess with well, what they now call P.E. or Phys Ed, we all knew that one kid that was going to be trouble every minute of every day. It seemed like he would have his hands in a little bit of everything, and he did it constantly, from one thing right straight to another all day long. Some of these things were just little mischievous jokes, or as we say in the mountains, just carrying on, which really didn't hurt anybody. But as he grew older, things got more serious. It was like he couldn't tell when he'd gone far enough or did enough. It was as if the kid didn't even know the word enough or knew what it meant. Now, I don't know how many of us heard anything from that one kid after we all finished school and went our own separate ways. I know that I can say, God bless Mr. Branson, one of the greatest school teachers to ever teach, and was my third grade teacher for trying to lead one of the those uh, folks back from the dark side the poor man probably tore a rotator cuff paddling on that boy i can tell you that the kid just couldn't stop himself and wound up in juvenile detention for armed robbery at the ripe old age of 12 he held up an ice cream store for the ice cream not the money the dummy held a 12 gauge shotgun on the clerk while he ate all the ice cream that he could stuff in his face before the police showed up and dragged him away then a week after being released at the age of 18, he was arrested again and sent to prison where he remains today. Seems like every time he makes parole, he makes it about a week before breaking it and getting sent back again. We here in the mountains always had a name for those who just couldn't stay out of trouble. Now, being that this is a family-type show, I'll only say it once. We call them shitbirds. Come on in, make yourself to home, and let me tell you a story that'll let you know that these type of birds have always been around.
Clifton Branham was born about the year 1861 in Cabin Branch, Kentucky, the son of John Calhoun Branham and Mahala Mosley Branham. Little Clifton grew up on the Pound River. He lived for a time in Dorton during the Civil War, and Clifton's father and two of his brothers served in the war. His father was even captured and was prisoner at Camp Chase in Columbus, Ohio. That's when his mother moved the family to the north of Cumberland Mountain for a spell near Elkhorn Creek. Now, I myself have done a good bit of research on Camp Chase, and as I found out that my great-uncle, John Fowler, was taken as prisoner of war at the Civil War camp during the uh, Battle of Saltville, Virginia. I found that Camp Chase had been hit with a massive outbreak of tuberculosis that nearly wiped out two-thirds of its prisoners and guards, which included my great-uncle John, who was buried there in the prison grounds. So, after hearing the news about the notorious Camp Chase, it was a great surprise to the family when Clifton's dad survived and was released. John Branham bought a piece of land in Owl Branch where he built the family cabin. Young Clifton started showing signs of having some Uh, as they were called, issues soon after that. He started thinking that his father, by providing his food and shelter, just wasn't doing right by him. After all, he was expected to pitch in and help out around the farm, and what kind of a life is that? So at the wisdom-filled age of 12 years, he left home and went to live with his brother and sisters in Johnson County, which is about 80 miles away. He was so hell-bent on leaving that he walked through the cold of winter in what begun as a rain, falling into freezing rain or falling into a creek at one time. Then after the rain turned to snow, he kept walking through the snow. That boy must have been mad. I think that I could have put up with the free food and shelter until it got warm enough to leave in the spring, don't you? But as he told it, he was turned away from shelter at every farm where he asked for help. Now, I'm not one to sit here and call little Clifton an outright liar, but that dog just don't hunt with me. The Appalachian people are usually the last ones to turn away a kid in need, and especially on a snowy winter night, and especially back in the 1800s. It's hard to imagine a 12-year-old walking 80 miles all alone, but Clifton was, after all, a tough Appalachian, and Appalachians have the, been known to make it a lot further through a lot worse. Nonetheless, nonetheless, I should say, Clifton made it to his brothers and sisters' place and stayed with them for the time being. About the age of 16, Clifton went to visit his cousin Martin Branham, who was a neighbor of Tandy Branham. Tandy had been killed in the war and left a widow and seven children, one of which was named Nancy Branham. When Clifton saw Nancy, he said he was she was the prettiest girl in the world. She was the same age as Clifton, and he made up his mind to make her his, just uh, as he put it, or die trying. Now, on me, there's something a little bit ee about a statement coming from Clifton Branham like that. On May 23, 1880, in Wise, Virginia, which is the future birthplace of the great actor George C. Scott, 
Nancy took Clifton Branham to be her lawful wedded husband. Now, it wasn't long after they got married that Clifton and a few friends started making moonshine. Now, we who live here in these old mountains know that moonshine has always been a way to earn some quick money in times of need. Clifton cut down a big chestnut tree to make the tubs and had a good place to, well, put his steel. He enjoyed playing music, and they all would often go to his house to maybe play a little fiddle and claw hammer banjo and do a little clogging sometimes. While being a big mess of moonshine cooking going on, sounds like they they probably had just a little bit of that too and maybe wetted the spirits a little bit. Of course, it wasn't too long before the revenuers finally caught wind of what was going on, and when they got close to getting him, he decided to just shut the whole operation down up and leave the area. He moved to the head of the Kentucky River. One of his partners in crime was Ira Mullins, better known as Bad Ira. Now, Bad Ira moved to Elkhorn Creek and settled on land of Harry Vanover, who claimed to own it. And... When Mr. Vanover found Bad Ira there, he told Bad Ira that uh, he was on his property and needed to gather his stuff and get to stepping. Apparently, nobody held the privilege of being able to bark orders at Bad Ira, except maybe his wife, Lorenzo. So, he and his wife started planning to get rid of Harry Vanover. It wouldn't, you know, that somebody ambushed, shot, and killed Oh, Henry Vanover on June 18th, 1887, while he and his wife were picking them a mess of beans in their garden. Henry was shot dead before he could even hit the ground, and he was already knelt over picking beans, so it wasn't far for him to fall to start with. Though he claimed to be at home with his wife and family that day, it was thought that Clifton Branham dropped a hammer on Mr. Vanover since it was alleged that he had received the right smart chunk of change for doing it. That word soon came back to the police, and Clifton was then pounced on, arrested, and tried and given a 90-day or 90-year prison sentence for the murder of poor old Henry Vanover. During his stay in prison, Clifton saw the error of his ways and began preaching and reading the Bible to his fellow inmates. When the governor heard this, he pardoned Clifton and told him to go home to his wife and children, who lived in Virginia. So... After serving 12 years on the Stony Lonesome, he received his conditional pardon on April 1st, 1902. Now, I don't know what those conditions were, but I'll bet you a dollar to a coon hide that Clifton didn't care a bit about it more than the man in the moon. And he was going home, so he always denied the killing, saying that I got some money to do the killing, but it didn't get around to it. I just couldn't get time to go kill Henry. Anyway, he returned to his wife about 12 years after they had been separated. They just couldn't seem to get along anymore. So he left to wander the mountains, doing a little couch surfing with relatives and uh, friends, and then every now and then, I guess he would just stop in with them. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, 
Clifton finally just uh, rode across the mountain to return to his home in Bold Creek in Wise County, Virginia, saying he wanted to visit the grave of his young daughter who had died while he was in prison. He stopped short of the state line at his son-in-law's where his wife Nancy was, had been staying at the time. But getting there, he learned his other daughter had got married, and I guess that must have crawled his nape. So... At first, a fight broke out between Clifton and his new son-in-law. During the fight, Clifton drew his gun, stuck it in his own son-in-law's face, and squeezed one off. His now blind wife, Nancy, <clears throat> who had come out to find out just exactly what the blue blazes were going on, thought, <clears throat> because of all the great wailing and gnashing of teeth, that he had maybe shot and hit his daughter. Nancy said, you have killed my child, and I'll have your neck broke for it. Clifton, thinking her to be harmless since she was blind, got close enough to Nancy for her to get hold of him and start punching him in the face. They struggled, and Clifton fired a shot that left the lifeless body of his wife Nancy laying on the ground beside his brother-in-law. Clifton then, as was his custom, rode back across the mountain yet again. Every time that conditions got too hot in the wise area, he would cross back over the border to Beef Hide in the Dorton area in Kentucky and lay low till things cooled off. Now, I'm not sure, but I'd bet my eye teeth that he broke a couple of conditions of his pardon by now. Now, hanging out with a trio of friends who are all heavily armed, Clifton paraded around about the country along Beaver Creek like a high-stepping royal Lipizzan stallion defying arrest for, well, a few days anyway. After those few days, it occurred to him that he might just need to get the heck completely out of the area because there was a big secret that he was hiding. In fact, several very big secrets. So Clifton made a break for the Wild West. I guess he figured that he could start all over there with a clean slate. I don't know if it ever entered his mind that he just had had a clean slate and systematically destroyed it in a matter of months. Just as Clifton, the walking torrent of self-destruction, was boarding a train for the west at White House Station in Johnson City, the good sheriff surprised him with a welcome committee and dragged him all the way back to Lexington Jail to prevent a lynch mob from taking him and doing what they always do. Yes, folks were pretty mad about him killing his blind wife and brand new son-in-law over the fact that they just happened to be doing nothing more than breathing when he stopped by. As Clifton, now sitting in the Floyd County, Kentucky jail, wondered who hit John and how much of what else he'd done that they knew about. There were several conferences being held in Kentucky and Virginia, or between Kentucky and Virginia. Virginia authorities prevailed upon the governor of Kentucky for the right to bring him back to Virginia as the killings were done in Virginia. The Kentucky governor agreed, saying that his home country had, or county had, a wide reputation for hanging man anyhow, since Clifton appeared to be in need of a good neck stretching. He should be brought back to Wise County, Virginia. The trial commenced and concluded on, at the July term in 1903 of the Wise County Court. Judge W.S. Matthews presiding. Clifton was well represented by the Honorable R.B or R.P. Bruce, J.F. Alley, and J.H. Hughes. Yeah, back then, judges were allowed to represent clients outside their service as a judge, which was a very unique thing to happen. 
you'd think it wouldn't even happen at all, knowing the way the judicial system is today, but yeah, sure enough was back then. The jury was composed of 12 good and competent men who patiently heard the evidence and after deliberation returned with a verdict of finding him guilty of murder in the first degree. When Judge Matthews pronounced sentence on Clifton Branham, he said, You're a mean man, Branham. You're dangerous to society. You've killed three men and your wife. On next Friday, September 25th, 1903, you'll be hung by the neck until you're dead. Now I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. Did the judge say he killed three men? Yes, my good friends, he sure did. It seems that old Clifton was once again overcome with religion somewhere along the way and during his stay in the big house. And he wrote the rest of the story, which included all of those secrets that he was keeping. He admitted that at the tender age of 14, and this would be back when he was staying with brother and sister, he took a deliberate aim and shot at a neighbor named Mrs. Fleming. And at another time, shot at her husband, John, but missed both of them. He claimed he meant to kill him for abusing his sister. He said that he later caught the old man Fleming out, or old woman Fleming out, I'm sorry, and beat her and threw her off a cliff, leaving her for dead. But she managed to climb back up and survived. She was tougher than he thought. And that's the way it was back then. People were just that tough. Later, he premeditatedly shot and to kill Rand Smallwood, but failed again. Apparently, he must be uh, in need of some shooting lessons or something back at that time. Clifton had gone home with Rance and stayed all night. Next day, they went squirrel hunting twice, and Clifton watched for the chance to kill him, but couldn't find one at all. I guess he didn't like the way Rance held his mouth or something. That afternoon, Clifton and Rance went up to West Sowards to see the girls, or his girls. They oiled their guns before they started, and Rance watched him all the way. When he stepped back behind Rance and to try to shoot him from behind, Rance said, Clifton, walk up here beside me because I believe you're trying to shoot me in the back. And he was, but uh, anyway, later after going back to Mr. Sowards and after eating supper there, the old man Seward went to bed, leaving Rance and the girls and Clifton in the kitchen talking. Clifton said that he had to go, but went around the house where he found a small hole cut through the wall. He could see Rance sitting just opposite of him in a chair, leaned up against the wall. Clifton poked the muzzle of his gun through the hole and fired what he thought would be a fatal shot right into Rance's face. Rance jumped to his feet and then fell on his face and said, Clifton Branham just killed me. Clifton left that same night and went all the way back to the Kentucky River like he always did. Not long about the same uh, the time of the murder of Henry Vanover, there was another killing which received a whole lot more attention. A uh, short time after his arrival at, to this little hidey hole in Kentucky, Clifton, no longer able to stand the peace and quiet of the little oasis away from the law, hired himself out as a hitman to kill a man named Anderson Moore, who lived in Beaver Creek and was quite a wealthy man. Mr. Moore's neighbor, John McCurry, just wasn't satisfied with the land boundaries that he claimed and a few more acres than Anderson understood to, stood it to be. So they uh, 
A shooting war soon broke out, and Mr. McCurry claimed that Anderson had shot up all his livestock and burned his barn to the ground. Both Mr. Moore and Mr. McCurry were fearful for their lives, and they had to stay hidden to keep from being shot. Now, everybody knows that you can't hide under the bed and be a productive farmer, so something had to give. Mr. Moore wasn't a big man. He stood about 5'8", but he always had his equalizer with him in the form of a 30-30 Winchester rifle. One day, Andy Holt, who worked for Anderson, took a shot at Mr. McCurry and another fellow who were crossing the creek below Anderson's home. Mr. McCurry was carrying his gun across his chest and the shot hit the gun right about where it would have hit his heart. Sounds to me like these two guys were standing on either side of the creek taking pot shots at each other. The only solution, as Mr. McCurry saw it, came from the form of the death of Mr. Anderson, Moore. So John McCurry had heard of the well-credited reputation of Clifton Brennan, reputed to be a very bad man, and began the plot of death on his neighbor by seeking out the services of Clifton Branham. Now, Clifton didn't know Anderson more from Adam, so Mr. McCurry hired two of Anderson's own relatives, Monroe and Nelson Moore, who were about 24 years old, to point him out to Clifton. Mr. McCurry promised the man the men $60 in cash each, a high-powered rifle, and the services of one of his daughters, Haley and Lila, or Lily, for each of the men. Despite being kinfolk to Anderson, they jumped all over their offer. In March of 1902, they hid up on the mountains with their high-powered rifles, waiting to see if Anderson would come out, or come by, maybe. He did it once, and once Clifton knew who, the, who to shoot, he shot. The shot hit Anderson in the groin, and he flopped to the ground in pain. He bled to death as Clifton walked over and relieved him of the $200 he had on him. Anderson Moore was buried at Beaver Creek. Most people around the area hated him so bad that they'd shot up his grave and house and everything else on his property the same night he was buried, and then threatened his wife, Lorraine, until she finally had to leave the area. After all of the that came to light. Nelson and Moreau Moore appeared before the grand jury where they were fined $100 apiece on each of two counts of conspiracy with a deadly weapon. <laughs> now, that's unthinkable nowadays, but, uh, well, that's the way it was written back then. On April 14, 1903, they were both tried and convicted of arson because they'd been the ones to burn Mr. McCurry's barn to the ground for Anderson Moore before they were hired to kill him. Nelson was taken to the pen at Frankfurt for two and a half years at hard labor, and Monroe received one year at hard labor. When Mr. McCurry came to trial for his part in the murder, on April 14, 1904, the jury found him not guilty. Don't that knock your hat in the creek, huh? But old John McCurry met Mountain Karma in the form of a gruesome killing. Somebody, and they never caught him, him or her, waylaid him while he was walking along the road, carrying a cross-cut saw on his shoulder, fixing to cut him a little bit of firewood. He was shot, but not in the normal sense of being shot. 
the bullet actually hit the saw and plunged the saw through his neck and cut his head off, which is one of the oddest things I've ever heard of. On the day of his hanging, Clifton combed his hair and fixed his clothes before he was taken out to the gallows. Clifton was led from the jail to the scaffold, which was erected at the Wise County Courthouse. Several people and groups had met with Clifton, praying with him, and, his, and from his own lips heard him say that he was ready to meet his maker. Then just before he was hanged, and not unlike a bad scene from an Elvis movie, and no, I'm not making this up, somebody handed him his guitar and he played in the sweet by and by before a crowd of about 3,000 people. I imagine that it was, he was hoping maybe for an encore to buy a little more time, but he must have been uh, not that good. He was then yanked to his feet. A black hood was slapped over his head, a rope placed around his neck, and a lever, uh, lever was pulled, and Clifton Branham was launched into eternity, becoming the last man to be hanged in Wise County, Virginia. His last request was that his friends, if he had any left that he hadn't killed yet, take him to Dickens County for burial. Clifton's body was indeed hauled back to Dickens County, Dickinson County, I'm sorry, in a horse-drawn wagon. People came out from the hills along, all along the way to try to catch a glimpse of the body going by. Clifton had allegedly requested to have a wake and said on the third day that he would arise from the dead. There was no end to him, I tell you. When the third day rolled around, they took the lid off of his homemade coffin and everybody waited. But the day passed without so much as a church mouse making a noise. Clifton Branham was then laid to rest in an unmarked grave high on a knoll of the family cemetery at the head of Pine Creek, ending yet another story of the violence and bloodshed in the Appalachian Mountains. I hope you enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow, please. If you'd like even more episodes of both podcasts and access to the Deviant Report, which comes out as I collect enough stories to make an episode, consider becoming a member at $1.99 a month for extra episodes of all three. Just visit anchor.fm and search Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend. I'd like to apologize for missing a review on Podcast Addict. Heck, I didn't realize they had reviews, but Ms. Brand wrote, Love this podcast. I'm from Campbell County, Tennessee, and straight out of the holler. I so enjoy hearing these stories. Thank you so much for doing this. Please don't stop. Thank you so much for your kind words, Ms. Brand, and for listening. And thank you all for being here and helping to grow the podcast. I'm not going anywhere. I will continue on with the stories from the Appalachian Mountains. By the way, if you have one that you'd like to hear or hear researched, just join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where you can drop it off your suggestion or we can discuss anything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. Uh, t- today actually marks the one-year anniversary of our show, and I'd like to thank you all so much for listening and helping build the podcast and what it is now. I'd never thought so. Uh, I never thought it would grow like this, uh, but uh, here I am uh, sitting around with all this stuff in my head that I've heard all my life and wondered what to do with it, so I started up a podcast. Uh, and thank you so much for supporting and being there every week. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian murder mystery or legend, and I will see you then.